Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. David Sandom was living in Salt Lake City and he appeared to have it all, a beautiful young family and a promising career ahead as a business consultant. But his life started veering off course, and upon returning to his native Scandinavia, he fell into an inexplicable deep depression. In his memoir, I'll Run Till the Sun Goes Down, he recounts his struggle to overcome his crippling mental illness. After years of hopeless despair, bleak hospitalizations, and shattered dreams, he's finally saved by his art. The paintbrush becomes his lifeline. Illustrated with the work of the artists who have inspired him, as well as samples of his own drawings and paintings, the memoir recounts in words and art the story of David Sandom's courageous battle with depression. We'll talk with David Sandom. His memoir is I'll Run Till the Sun Goes Down. That follows the news. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. David Sandom appeared to have it all. Beautiful young family, a promising career ahead as a business consultant. But his life started veering off course. Upon returning to his native Scandinavia, he fell into an inexplicable deep depression. I'll run till the sun goes down is an honest account of David's struggle to overcome his crippling mental illness. After years of hopeless despair and bleak hospitalizations and shattered dreams, he's finally saved by his art. The paintbrush becomes his lifeline. David Sandom uh, joins me in uh, studio to talk about uh, his uh, memoir. The subtitle is A Memoir About Depression and Discovering Art. And uh, there is an event at the King's English Bookshop, headlined by David Sandom. That is tonight, 7 to 9, at the King's English Bookshop in uh, Salt Lake City. David Sandom, thanks for coming in. Thanks for allowing me to be here. Very interesting memoir, and I think, um, uh, well, first of all, what, what's the feedback you've, you've been getting? I imagine there are people suffering from depression and other mental illness that probably would respond to this memoir. Yeah, I mean, depression and mental health, it's uh, more common than we think. Um, most, most of us know someone in our family. It could be a brother, a spouse, a friend, a family member. And um, the greatest feedback or the most rewarding feedback for me is when they write me a, a letter or they do a review on Amazon where they say, thank you for helping me understand my husband better or my wife better. I feel more empathetic now. I, I realize I used to be judgmental, you know, so anything I can do to promote, uh, to erase uh, the stigma around mental health, that's very rewarding. Mm. The understanding, I guess that is very important, right? And, and I'm sure as we go along telling your story, there are people in your life maybe didn't understand. And uh, the beginning of this memoir, which begins with you in Salt Lake City. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're having trouble understanding what's going on in, in your life, going on in, you know, in your, in your body and in, in your mind. Um, so you, you were, uh, in, let's start right there. So Salt Lake City, you're going to school. Mm-hmm. Um, your wife, Kirsty, your two boys. So mm-hmm. you're living a life that many do a very hectic yeah. life, right? Working full time, school mm-hmm. full time, have a couple of kids. Mm-hmm. And so I guess that's kind of where you, you began and you began to have some symptoms, but you, you thought, well, this is, you know, everybody goes through this, right? It's just stress from... Yeah. And and first of all, there's a little bit of a difference between depression and anxiety. They usually travel in pairs. Um, but for me, it started to become more of an anxiety issue. Um, it's, uh, it's noteworthy how 
physical mental pain can be, you know, how integrated often the mental and the physical are. So in my case, I would break down in the shower. I wouldn't know why. I would feel I was failing at everything, even though I was doing really good. Um, I was just so exhausted, um, started having problems with my stomach, problems walking fast, uh, chest pains, uh, uh, which we now know could be anxiety or an anxiety attack, um, uh, terrified me. I actually went to the hospital several times, fully convinced that I had a heart attack because the chest pains were so intense and I couldn't breathe. And I thought I had all the symptoms, you know, pain up your arm, everything you read. And so I'm rushing off to the hospital convinced, you know, I'm going to die and they can't find anything. So it was completely, utterly confusing uh, for quite a long time before I got help understanding what was going on. That's something I think you helped me understand, this, this, this physical manifestation. Mm-hmm. We tend to think of mental illness as mental, right? Uh, yeah. The but thoughts you have. But you, you, act, you doubled over in pain. And you'd be... Yeah. And you could get back pain, neck pain, headaches. I mean, all of that is uh, in relation to stress. So um, in my case, it started out as kind of a burnout. You, you were just going too fast. Um, thinking you were Superman, that you could do anything. You you go to class in the morning, you go to work in the day, you go to class in the evening, go to the library till it closes, doing homework, and then you get a few hours of sleep, and then you know you have to take care of the kids, or they might not be able to sleep that night, mm-hmm. and just lack of sleep, pushing yourself very hard. Um, it, it can be dangerous. You need to know your limits a little bit, mm-hmm. but. Um, for me, it started out as uh, anxiety-related uh, burnout uh, kind of problems, which went on for quite a while. I pushed myself really, really hard, really long to graduate. But after graduation and moving back to Scandinavia, it just kind of fell apart. And mm-hmm. that, that led to the depression that I sunk into. Mm-hmm. So um, let's see, your, your wife, was uh, she had an American mother, right? And, yes. And American relatives, yeah. In Idaho, I think. and so Yeah, her grandparents are in Pocatello. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe a natural decision that we're going to do school in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, we got married young. I was 21. She was 20. Um, LDS. And um, we decided to move to, to Utah. I'd been an exchange student at Olympus High School in 1988. Yeah. It's a while ago. So for me, it felt very good to come back because I had a lot of friends here. Mm. Um, yeah. So you, uh, your your wife's Norwegian. You're Swedish. Yes. Uh, you met in Denmark, I think. Yeah, the youth conference. Yeah. yeah. Um, so first of all, let me pause your story right there. Uh, exchange student. Yeah. In Salt Lake, how how was that? How was the culture shock? No, that was fun. Mm-hmm. I loved that. That was. I mean, I was 16, just mm-hmm. having fun. Yeah. So, so yeah. I got into that pretty quick. I ran track and field. I was very involved in school and got a lot of friends. Right, right. So no problem at all? No, no. Navigating. Well, I I won't say no problem at all because my mother passed away when I was 13 Mm. and I still carried a lot of that confusion and sadness with me. So I had moments where things were a little heavy. Yeah. And then your dad remarried. Yes. And you as a teenager trying to to process all this, I think you had some issues with with Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted take a year off and go to America for high school was to kind of get away from that situation. Yeah. So uh, you and your wife come to, uh, to to the U.S., come to Utah, in fact, yeah. uh, three-year-old at that point and a three-month-old when the, when your memoir begins. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so with all the stresses that that would bring, working full time, I think at a watch store. Yeah, yeah. In, in the mall. Yeah. It sounds like you had a position of managerial. Yeah, I was position. a management of this a manager of the store. Uh, big dreams, right? You're going to get into management, uh, yeah. management consult. consult yeah. Right? Yeah, uh, I was. I wanted to be a consultant for like Anderson Consulting and things like that. Mm-hmm. And my degree was in organizational communication. Yeah. So I wanted to to do that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So how did you? When did you begin to maybe think? Well, this this goes. What I'm experiencing maybe goes beyond the stresses that everybody is experiencing. Well. What's interesting is that a lot of people around me noticed that I had dark bags around my eyes. I was, uh, they said I looked exhausted, you know. <laughs> it's a nice compliment when you come to campus and say, hey, dude, you look beat. <laughs> you look, <laughs> you need to get some sleep. But, you know, I, I knew that I couldn't stop or I would collapse. It was, it was this kind of feeling that the train was in motion. And if I stopped it, it would just die. And so I, I just ignored everything. Um, a professor even called me in one time and wanted me to talk to student health services, saying that he had noticed me and over a long time uh, looking not well. Mm-hmm. But I just ignored it because I was not like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand what they were talking about. My self-view was not in line with uh, any kind of depression or anything like mm-hmm. that. That, w- that would have been looked like as a, de- a defeat for me. Mm-hmm. So you were dealing with the stigma mm-hmm. associated with your self-view, and you didn't want to deal with that. You well, absolutely. To, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I wanted to be a business consultant. I didn't want to end up at a mental hospital. Yeah. Um, but you were, I'm sure you you noticed, you write it in the memoir, I'm sure you noticed the mm-hmm. behaviors in, in yourself, you know, going into the bathroom crying, yeah. doubling over with stomach pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I always I always looked for um, a physical explanation. Maybe I have cancer. Maybe I have some some other illness. Maybe there, maybe maybe there is something with my heart. I always thought I had a heart problem mm-hmm. because of the chest pains, and so that that's where where my thinking was. Mm-hmm. What did your was there any conversation with your wife? about this did she yeah I'm sure she suspected something was going on right yeah she asked me to slow down you know take less classes um so we did have some conversations about that but i was so eager to get done it was so tough and you know i just wanted to get done so i could get a regular job a regular life be done with this move back home or whatever if we stay or wherever i got a job and then everything would be fine. Mm. It's this idea that if I only get there, then everything will work out. Mm, right, right. Just keep going. Yeah. And, it, and, and uh, I have to finish. Mm. You know, I'm close. I have one semester left. Mm-hmm. I just got to push through that. Yeah. I push through. I mean, I'm, I've been struggling for three years. What's the difference with another six months? Yeah. So uh, uh, the decision was uh, we're going to go back to Scandinavia. Right. How, what went into that decision? Because I guess you could have stayed in America. Yeah, uh, I think it was that my sons were then, you know, four months old and three when when there, we had or four, four and four years old and a uh, few months. And I wanted my kids to grow up around family. And when I was done with school and had graduated, it just felt natural for us to move back, be in our culture, learn our language. And that's kind of how I mm-hmm. thought. So the decision was to go back at least for time with your wife's parents, live live in the basement there. Yeah, uh, live live with my wife's parents, my in-laws, until I found a job. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, we moved back with no money, just the way we moved to the States. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I went after work uh, furiously trying to find a job, mm-hmm. especially my dream job. I had interviews lined up with all the big consulting firms, Anderson Consulting and all of these uh, companies, Boston Consulting Group. So I had top grades. I was able to get line up interviews with, with the big companies in Scandinavia before we moved home. So I felt rather hopeful about that. Mm-hmm. What was your, what did that represent to you? I guess that represented success. That was the dream. Right? Yeah, yeah, but it was also what I thought I wanted to work with, okay. you know, instead of working in retail or something, you know, you mm-hmm. work in retail thinking I'm going to get a real job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I liked retail too, but mm-hmm. I mean, I just wanted to get a career and get a life so we could buy a house and a car just like everyone else and, you know, live the standard family life. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a point early in the book where you kind of juxtapose because you're having a bit of an argument uh, with your wife, and she's saying, "Well, maybe we should have slowed down. Mm-hmm. Perhaps we should have decided to stay in America." And yeah, so you're going back and forth in your mind. It was interesting to me to juxtapose the two cultures and the two political systems. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that you brought up in your mind was, "Well, in America, I could." keep a lot more of the money rather than give half of it in taxes in in Sweden or Norway. Uh, What were some of the other things that you maybe went back and forth on in terms of culture? I think it was um, mostly cultural. I mean, anyone who has lived uh, in two countries and kind of moved back and forth through their youth, um, other Scandinavians who lived, lived in Utah moved home and moved back to Utah and then moved back home, they'll realize this, that wherever you are, you'll miss the other place. So mm. when you're in, in, in Utah, you'll miss Sweden and, or Norway. And when you're in Scandinavia, then you'll miss Utah. So mm. there's good and bad things about both places, and you'll always miss something. Yeah. One thing, uh, you wanted your boys to experience some of the cultural things, right? And, and ocean was very important. Yes, I you. missed the ocean tremendously when I was in Utah. But you got to remember, we lived here seven and a half years. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I, I hadn't seen the ocean in five years, I started feeling withdrawals almost. I really missed the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us about the town you then moved to, your, your, I guess your wife's hometown. Yeah, it's a small town called Moss, which is about 45 minutes south of Oslo. Mm. And we still live in in that town. We still live in the same house that Mm. we moved in uh, 17 years ago. Yeah. Uh, Is that good or bad? Sometimes you measure progress by, by, you know, I'm still in the same place, you know, but I guess a positive thing. Yeah. um, Well, we like it there. It's Mm. close to family. We live across the street from our in-laws. You know, I've been in a very tough health situation, so it's been very good to have close family by. Yeah, We've also had other health issues in our family. My wife had breast cancer all last year. So we've been through some tough times, and family's always good to have around. Wow, on, on top of your yeah. health struggles, yeah. Uh, I want to get back to that. Um, first of all, your your oldest boy was, what, four when you went back? Yeah. How did I imagine at that age you, you adapt very quickly? Yeah. He was my little American boy at the time. He spoke perfect English, and uh, I felt kind of sad about removing him from here, but I felt also glad from uh, putting him in a place where he would learn the language and and the culture and the memories I had growing up. Mm -hmm. I think most parents want that for their children. They they want them to experience some of the same things they did when they were young, Mm -hmm. and I wanted that too. But it's special that he's here now at Utah State. Oh, oh, very (laughs) nice. And... He's uh, going to be 21 this year, hmm. so uh, it's, it's kind of uh, uh, interesting to think about. Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, you move the family back to, to Norway. Um, you're you're pursuing jobs in the consulting field with the big firms. Mm-hmm. Um, how how's your mental health at that point? Well, the things I experienced before graduation at the U with these kind of breakdowns, breakdowns in the shower, unable to walk faster, you feel like you're gonna gag and throw up, or you know, all of these symptoms of exhaustion or anxiety. I mean, it just got worse. I mean, I got to a point where it was crippling, Um, especially uh, insomnia. I really struggled to sleep, constantly worried uh, that I wouldn't get the job or I wouldn't do good enough. And all the focus that goes into interviewing, it's it's really nerve-wracking. And I made it to the fourth interview or fifth interview with these companies three times. I mean, I was that close, you know. They flew me to Stockholm, first class. Mm -hmm. We have... The interview seem, first interview seems to be going great. Second, too. Third, wonderful. Fourth, yeah, we're just having a fifth interview just to check things up and then, no, sorry, you couldn't get the job. So it's like you, you give it everything, and right before the finish line, you just fall every time. It, it, the idea of feeling like a failure started creeping in, which is more of a depression thought, mm-hmm. this thing that I can't, I can't get things done, I, I'm not good enough. Um, I think that's where the bridge between anxiety and depression started to take place. Mm. They don't always manifest together, but but sometimes or often. Well, well, I think that you know, working at an extreme pace and pushing yourself very hard over a long period of time, if you don't listen to the body's signals that are telling you you need to slow down, and you keep pushing yourself, and you think, oh, I can do this, you know, it's tough, but you know, I just need to get done, and then it'll get better. And you, I mean, if you don't listen to the body telling you, you know, you got to get help or you got to slow down, it's not going to get any better. Mm. So I didn't do that. And I think that, I mean, depression can exist without anxiety. There are people who just can't get out of bed because they're so exhausted. They won't have anxiety symptoms. Um, and there are people who have anxiety symptoms without the heavy depression. Uh, it's kind of rare, but it does exist. And then you have what I explained is usually the most common one is the combination of the two. But uh, this idea of overwork, I mean, the overworking yourself to the point where it leads to depression is a common path, I think. Hmm. So that's it's got to be harder and harder, I'm guessing, to function. It's, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's admirable, I guess, right, that you... Yeah, you keep, went as long as you did it, apart from driving yourself too hard, I guess. But yeah, I had a psychologist that told told me, you know, you think you're weak, but most people wouldn't have made it, you know, a year with the pace you were going. You've probably done this five years. An interesting aspect of this that my psychologist explained to me is that too many changes over a short period of time exposes you to these kinds of problems. He said a normal person can handle about two to three big changes in a year. And by that we mean moving to a new place, uh, new culture, uh, someone dies in the family, a divorce, uh, anything like that that's a major change in your life, getting married, having a child. Um, he said, I count like nine or 10. You just had a baby, you just graduated, you just moved to a new country, you just moved to a new house, you're starting a new job or you're trying to do, get a job. Um, so he, he just said, you're, you're exposed because of that, so you need to re- eliminate some of those changes. In, in that sense, it probably would have been better if I wouldn't have moved home at that time. Mm-hmm. Probably waited in Utah for a year and slowed down. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I can't change that now. Right. Mm-hmm. And you didn't 
you didn't, I guess, know exactly what it was. You didn't have a di- diagnosis, right? No, and it, it would take another year for me to come to terms with what was going on yeah. after I started getting help. Yeah. So in the meantime, what uh, what was the reaction from your? Uh, well, first of all, you. What what did you think was going on? Well, it depends what stage we're talking about. When I started getting help from doctors and they wanted to get me in therapy or get me on medication for depression, um, I resisted at first. Uh, I wasn't like that. Um, I don't know. I, I saw it as real defeat to get that label. And um, I, I'm, I'm not proud of that now, but um, I've been through that process. So my first reaction was to try to fight it, just like I fought everything else, mm-hmm. and and try to get another job or just and and just move on. Mm-hmm. And that is important, isn't it? To, that label, because I think there still is stigma. There is a lot there. of stigma with mental health, both from the people that suffer from it and the families. And if there's anything I want to tell people. First of all, if you do suffer with mental health and your or depression or anxiety and you're not getting help, it's it's of course a very lonely condition. You feel that nobody else feels what I do, but you're not alone. There are lots and lots of people, but they don't communicate about their problems and they need to get help. They need to talk to a professional to to help them out. The sec the second thing could be for family members to not feel ashamed when the word depression or anything like that comes up it's an illness it's um, if you break your leg everybody thinks that's terrible you say you have depression they all want to come with advice well you just need to forget about the past or move on and you need to think more positive or the i mean these kinds of statements are so hard to listen to when you are depressed Mm -hmm. because you feel so exhausted so hopeless and all you need is just a a arm around your shoulder no no advice, just empathy and understanding. That's really my message. So tough love, so-called, is, is not what's needed here. You know, snap out of it kind of a thing is, uh, no. I guess, betrays a misunderstanding of what's going on. I can guarantee that if you use that kind of language with someone who is really struggling with depression or anxiety, it is only going to get worse. And they're going to feel more isolated, more misunderstood, um, because... The best thing that you can do to someone who has that condition, and if you're a loved one, is to try to just listen or even just be there. Mm. Just, be, just be there. Just just be there and, and show empathy. Mm. Maybe do small things together if they can. Um, but if if they open up and talk about their problems, just try to t- try to listen. If it's serious, uh, get them in touch with a professional mm. because they need professional help. A lot of people try to be hobby psychologists and things like that, and that's okay to a certain degree. But if it's serious, they need to get professional help. Mm. I was uh, talking to a, a gentleman who did a program uh, recently on, on mental health issues, and he said before he was diagnosed, I guess before he sought that out, um, one of the factors um, that he had to deal with was the family culture, and I, I think it was his father who said, our family doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. We don't, you know, we don't do mental illness. Right. Um, so that, you know, there, that can be a, a family attitude can, I guess, help or hinder. Absolutely. What, how did your, as things worsened, what did your, were the conversations with your wife, with your family? 
Um, mostly with my doctors because mine worsened so fast. I mean, I went from starting to see uh, a doctor and a psychologist from ending up in a mental hospital in a period of about six months. Mm. It, it happened really fast. I mean, I, I, I just felt into a pit so quickly but it, it was just like i had suspected if the train stops it's just gonna crash and that's really what happened hmm. i really crashed yeah and i crashed really hard so i went from burnout to depression to clinical depression in about six months wow is is that faster than usual i guess everybody has their own I don't think there's a Pace formula of, yeah. for mm -hmm. how fast that can happen it yeah. all depends on the person and situation so critical step getting to the doctor right getting mm -hmm. to the i guess the psychiatrist um what what got you there what 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 helped you make that decision um well my employer i i didn't get a job as a business consultant i ended up getting an it sales job in oslo which was the worst thing i could have done because that's the most hectic uh job you can do plus i was in a in a field that i do, knew nothing about about the most untechnical person in the world, but I just needed a job and um, found myself running around Oslo in the most hectic environment, work environment. But my boss noticed that I wasn't doing well. He started seeing the symptoms there. And he, he actually had a, a meeting with me and said, I, I should probably go see a doctor, get, get a few days off and rest. So, um, and that doctor then led me on to another psychologist, psychiatrist, yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's take a brief break. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue David Sandom's story. Very interesting story. He recounts this in his memoir, I'll Run Till the Sun Goes Down. Um, and uh, the subtitle is a memoir about depression and discovering art. We want to get to that uh, part of it uh, as as well. And the memoir uh, has artwork in it. Uh, a lot of, a lot mm -hmm. of David Sandom's uh, works. Um, it's, this book is available now, and uh, there is an event. David Sandom will be headlining an event at the King's English Bookshop. Um, and that is tonight, 7 to 9 p.m. at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. This is Brian Erickson and Bringing More to Life. Patients have the right to make informed choices about their health care. This means that you should be offered the opportunity to compare and make choices that suit your needs. Choice includes the right to select the services you use from hospitals, clinics, doctors, physical and occupation and speech therapists, rehab centers, independent and assisted living centers, home health and hospice agencies, and pharmacies. Information is available to explain your options. If you are a parent or not offered a choice, it should be explained why. Ask questions. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. We're back with David Sandom. He appeared to have it all. Beautiful young family, promising career ahead as a business consultant, but his life started veering off course. Upon returning to his native Scandinavia from Salt Lake City, that's where the memoir starts, he fell into an inexplicable deep depression. I'll Run Till the Sun Goes Down is a searingly honest account of his struggle to overcome his crippling mental illness. After years of hopeless despair, bleak hospitalizations, and shattered dreams, he's finally saved by his art. The paintbrush becomes his lifeline. 
And uh, we're talking with David Sandham on the program today, recounting his story. And the memoir is out now and available. I'll run till the sun goes down. And he is headlining an event at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City tonight, 7 to 9, free and open uh, to the uh, public. So, David Sandham, we uh, recounted your stories. The, the memoir starts in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. You and your wife, uh, two sons, going to school, hectic life. Uh, you start to have some symptoms of anxiety. Uh, returning to uh, to Scandinavia, you're living in Norway. Um, then things go downhill from from there. You you're, you get to a doctor, mm-hmm. get a diagnosis at that point. Yeah, I get the diagnosis, and um, it took me a while to accept that. Um, I I wanted to find a physical explanation for this for quite some time. I remember the day that I accepted the diagnosis. Um, which was also associated with starting a medication for depression. And I resisted that at first for many months. But when I finally a- admitted that I probably did have depression and that I should start medications, I just cried for a whole day. I felt like life was over. Mm. Why? I-, I don't really know. Mm. Um, maybe I just started realizing what a mess I was in. Mm. Um, um and it was a feeling of defeat. It was so out of skew with my self-view, this idea of who am I? And f- I did not associate myself with that. Um, my grandmother on my father's side had been hospitalized for depression uh, when she was younger. And um, I always found that very odd growing up. And um, I didn't understand what had happened to her. But um, ironically, I fell victim to the same prejudice that or stigma that I'm trying now to erase. Mm-hmm. So it's it was self-perception, I guess, Yeah, right? self, yeah. my self-view was not in line with that. I was not a depressed person. But yeah. when I finally admitted that to myself, like an, an alcoholic saying I'm, that finally admits he's an alcoholic, um, I could start working on the issue, but I, it was also a, a very hard moment for me. Mm-hmm. So you were, what a doctor prescribed medication, did he? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Then did you, was there a problem wanting to accept that you, you needed medication? Yes, uh, yeah. at first, but um, I finally agreed to it. Yeah. Did, what was the effect? Did it help? I think the problem for me was um, I had a lot of anxiety issues. And so if you struggle a lot with anxiety, it can be tricky to find the right medication or the combination between uh, medicine that helps for depression or medicine that helps for anxiety or a combination of the two. And what uh, what uh, level, I mean, what do you call it? Uh, what dose, there's the word. Dose, there <laughs> it's go. the same, it's a Norwegian. Mm. Now, to find the right dose, can, dosage can take a, a long time, can mm. take up to six months. Yeah. And you ended up hospitalized. Yes. And so for me, um, it just just started to go downhill really, really fast. I got so extremely depressed that I was very suicidal. I felt like a complete failure. Um, my life had ended um, in my eyes. I had nothing more. I had no more energy, you know. And I'm a person with a lot of drive. And when I didn't have the energy to get up out of bed or do do anything for a while or um, yeah, it just just felt hopeless. Mm. With with clinical depression, there that's one of the that's a danger, right? Suicide. 
Yes. Um, uh, it, there's no doubt about it. And if you ever have a friend that's depressed that's saying they think about that or, I mean, if, even if they say it jokingly, you should take it serious. Um, always try to get them professional help if, if that's mentioned. But it's, it's, it, was, it, be, it started to become almost like an obsessive thought for me. Mm. Um, and I can't really explain that, but it, it was something I thought about a lot. Mm. So that's a, that's a very dark time, a very, you know, a lot of problems, constellation of problems. How, how did you begin to uh, move upward from, from that? Well, we're talking about so many years here, but mm. what eventually happened going back in time to where we're talking after medication and that and how I ended up at the hospital, um, I went to the doctor one day and we talked about my suicidal thoughts and things like that. And um, it, it, and he said, you, or actually it was a she this time because I'd been transferred to um, a psychiatric um, hospital where I met with a nurse for a year. So I'm no longer talking to my doctor. I'm talking to a specialist and a psychiatrist there. But my psychiatrist and the nurse I was talking to said, you can't leave this office. So they forced me to the hospital, which was extremely traumatic for me. Uh, so I'm, I'm in a new country, which, I mean, it's close to Sweden where I was raised, but still a new country. And uh, I just started my job, and now I'm being forced to the hospital for depression because they're afraid I might take my life. The, yeah, that would be traumatic, right? You would fight against that, I guess, but on, on a certain level, you'd maybe know that maybe this is what I need. I mean, that was the one thing I was afraid of uh, ever since the story of my grandmother because she'd been in hospital and told how horrible that was, but that was in the 1940s. I mean, <laughs> getting electric shocks and things like that it wow. always scared me so i always associated the hospital as this dreadful horrible place and um, um now i was being forced um if if I, if I wanted to leave the police would take me there it's the first time i've been in that situation where my liberty is taken away against my will and i had to be locked up at the hospital for 10 days mm. but when i got there um i slept i think two three days straight i was so exhausted and um, the book talks about that in detail, all the mm. things that happened in the hospital. And, uh, yeah, and I would urge people to go and read the book for it. Fascinating, uh, fascinating story. Um, so I guess it had, had some good outcomes. You were able to just sort of let go and sleep, right? And yeah, first, that was the first reaction. You're in a safe environment. There's nothing else to do. You're just in your room. You're locked in. I just slept. I was completely exhausted. Mm-hmm. Um, full circle with your family story, and I wonder if that that point you're still thinking of, of, of this with a stigma attached, you know, because mm. this is what happened to your grandmother, right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's happening to me. And Yeah. Of course, the fear that I had of what the hospital would be like, I mean, it had changed a lot since the 1940s. I had my own room, for instance. My grandmother describes being in a room with five other patients mm. who were screaming. and I mean, her 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 vision of what it was like or I, I mean not vision but experience of what it was like was probably l very different than what it is today and you know it's it's important to know that it's not the end of the world to go to a mental hospital if you need help mm -hmm. you're not going to be tied down and strapped down and electrocuted you know all that stuff yeah. they care about you and they help you there and if you're in that place you're there for a reason and um i've been back to the hospital many times since then um and I, I look at it as a place where I can get help. Mm. 
just like if I had broken my leg, I would go to a hospital to have a doctor put a cast on it. Hmm. What What do you think it'll take for culture, for society to view mental illness the, the way you you made that analogy, right? Uh, same way you view a broken leg or something. Uh, yeah, I think that's where the real challenge is. Uh, people still don't view it as um, an illness. They view it maybe as a weakness of someone's uh, ability to work or you know all the things that we associate as successful in life. Depression is always at the very opposite of that end of that spectrum, especially in America. I mean, here we're supposed to live the American dream. You work hard. You you. Uh, you get to the top by by uh, yeah just plugging away and you don't complain um so when the american dream is shattered which i see a lot in america today listen to politics and things like that it's obvious there's a lot of that going on people don't associate that as a positive thing but rather um you 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 should get your act together and uh, if you do that, and if you bounce back, that's great. Because then, you know, you, what do you call it? A comeback is always a positive thing. That's then right. you can use it. But, but if you get stuck in, in that, uh, then, then you're in trouble. I think a lot of people view depressed people as junkies sitting in the corny, corner. They're just lazy. You know, all of these stereotypes. They don't know how hard it is to fight, how, how, how much energy it takes to fight depression every day just not to give up mm. so if you notice the, the some things about a, a you know friend or family member what uh, what to do yeah that's a very good question what do you do i think that people with depression and other mental health things that we we have like an emotional radar we can sense if someone is caring or honest or if they're just trying to look good or say the right things or if they're judging us you know even if they say the wrong things if they mean well we can usually put up with that but the way to get through is really try to be as empathetic as you can and ask some genuine questions and then listen and um, you don't have to do anything spectacular you don't have to take a trip to Hawaii or anything like that just go for a walk around the block and uh, sit down in the grass and just Ask them a few sincere questions. And if you notice that, you know, the conversation that you're taking, that there are some very dark thoughts going on, you as a family member don't need to have that weight or shouldn't have the weight of being the one to treat that. Put them in touch with a help organization. There are volunteer organizations you can call. It's important to get a third party involved that is neutral so that it doesn't get emotional and arguments start because there are usually a lot of tensions in these situations. But to get in professional help is important. And I'll put in a plug for uh, NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness. Um, mm -hmm. Who to call? Uh, the, the, uh, that'd be a good one. I was just uh, confused between org and uh, comma. just pulled it up here, nami.org. Um, and then there's Utah, NAMIUT.org for, for Utah. There's a Cache Valley chapter. Mm -hmm. The chapter's all over Utah. So NAMI would be a good place to, to, mm -hmm. to go um, in Utah and in America. Uh, just before we go to another break, um, I want to follow up on cultural differences mm -hmm. and, and views of mental illness. Mm -hmm. uh, you said, and I think we probably know it intuitively, you've experienced this in the U.S., it's that 
pull yourself up by the mm-hmm. bootstraps. Mm-hmm. That's kind of American dream, which could maybe exacerbate some problems mm-hmm. if you're feeling like you're not yeah. doing that. Uh, what about in, in Norway and in, uh, in, in Sweden? What's the, what, what's the view of mental illness there, sir? cultural overlay? I think some of the stigmas are, are fairly the same. Um, the idea of viewing people as, as lazy or taking advantage of the system, especially if they can't work for a long time and they're, they're getting benefits, uh, social welfare, things like that. But in general, n- not as much focus on achievement and things like that because Scandinavia is more about the collective. Um, we have, we're a social democ- democracy, <laughs> which Trump and others probably um, rule as communism. But it's really not that. Uh, it just means that we have social medicine, you know. Um, so the good thing about Scandinavia is probably that more people can get help that need help. Um, there's still a lot to work with over there, but the problem here is huge. There are so many people falling through the cracks here. And um, this Horatio Alger myth of racing yourself from the bootstraps and... I mean, Jerry Seinfeld's comment that getting the silvers is being the second best loser. I mean, every, everything about that just is part of American society. They love winners. They, help, they hate complainers. Um, the dream of, is achieved by working hard. Mm. And I think that creates a little bit of a problem. Mm. You know, we're all different. We have different capacity and different capacity in different times of our life. When I was at, at the university, I had the capacity to work hard. Now I have to realize I have limits. I work hard, but I have to manage that and I have to listen to my body. And if the anxiety starts coming too much, I have to listen to that and slow down. Hmm. Let's take another brief break. Uh, when we come back, I want to get into art. You said yeah. Art, art really uh, <laughs> was, was a saving grace for you. And you can see a lot of uh, David Sandham's artwork in the memoir, which is called I'll Run Till the Sun Goes Down, a memoir about depression and discovering art. Uh, a note that David Sandham will headline an event at the King's English Bookshop tonight from 7 to 9 p.m. in uh, Salt Lake City. More following this brief break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members, and support for science reporting on Utah Public Radio comes from the Utah State University Ecology Center, providing training opportunities for today's science communicators one story at a time. We're back with our final segment with David Sandom. He uh, was raised in Sweden, uh, came to the U.S., came to Salt Lake City, in fact, for school, mm-hmm. uh, moved back uh, to his wife's hometown in, uh, in Norway. Mm-hmm. Uh, still your hometown there. Yes. Um, and uh, he appeared to have it all, beautiful young family, promising career ahead as a business consultant, but his life started veering off course. Upon returning to his native Scandinavia, he fell into an inexplicable deep depression. I'll Run Till the Sun Goes Down is a searingly honest account of his struggle to overcome his crippling mental illness. And after years of hopeless despair, bleak hospitalizations, and shattered dreams, he's finally saved by his art. The paintbrush becomes his uh, lifeline. So in this last segment, David Sandham, I want to get into to that. Um, um, art. Saved by art. How did that happen? Well... First of all, when I, I was forced to the hospital for the, those first 10 days, um, I was able to draw. There was a, uh, after three, four days, I, I was able to get a drawing pad and a pen so I could do something. And I started drawing intensively. But it wasn't just the act of, of drawing and painting that saved me. It was the art itself because 
um, because of the work by Edvard Munch, um, you say Munch a lot of times in America. <laughs> I find that very funny. Uh, but uh, Edvard Munch's uh, work and Vincent van Gogh and many others, they gave me true empathy. It was so remarkable um, looking at their pictures, uh, looking at their paintings. Look, I found this is what I'm going through. They have been able to convey all this chaos that I have inside that I've not been able to understand. I could see that in in their art. And it was so powerful on me. And it just created this strong urge to paint myself, mm. to to get all of this frustration out of my system, to be able to to express the pain inside in a cathartic way uh, was so liberating. And so I started studying intensely about other artists, of course, but also painting and drawing and things like that for myself. But I would say there was great empathy in art that I couldn't get from people, but I saw it in their pictures. Mm. I'll just give you one example. <clears throat> there was a time I, I didn't I didn't sleep for days. I really struggled with insomnia. I had so much anxiety. It was nearly unbearable. And I remember seeing a painting by Munch called The Night Walker. And there's this painting of him, a self-porter, where he's standing on the side of the image, peeking into the room, looking at you in the dark. And it, it's, it captured what I was going through in such a powerful way. So no, art no longer became this thing that you put on your wall. It became life. Hmm. Now, we're... Was it the art itself, or or was it the biography, or I guess a mix of two? I mean, Van Gogh famously yeah, suffered course. mental health issues, uh, of for, for one, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess it would be both. I yeah, think. it's a combination mm -hmm. of reading about their lives, uh, seeing the similarities of the struggles they went through, uh, uh, and what I was going through, but also what they were able to convey, mm -hmm. how they were able to convey those feelings through their work. Mm -hmm was uh, amazing to me. I don't know if I would have seen that if I wasn't at that uh, terrible state myself, but also beautiful things. I mean, mm. I mean, just because you're depressed doesn't mean you don't see beauty. I mean, Van Gogh painted fantastic landscapes, energetic, vibrant skies, and uh, I could still see that beauty with my eyes as the depressed person. I just couldn't feel that same way. But I saw it, and I could, uh, yeah. And the way that they were able to capture that too was, mm -hmm. was remarkable. So you, you said that's interesting. You you're able to see it, see there's beauty there, but but not feel it in a certain way. Yeah, yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, I don't think Van Gogh or Munch could have painted what they did if they didn't have glimpses of of of, of seeing and recognizing beauty in things. But it's not this overwhelmingly joyful feeling. It's more of a logical approach. You see the beauty. Um, you might feel it for a little bit, but um, it's always overshadowed by the deep uh, chaos inside. Mm -hmm. you got to remember, though, people go through different periods and phases of their lives. Munch and uh, Van Gogh, they had some up and downs, ups and downs in their lives, too. Mm -hmm. Some moments of deep, deep crisis, like when Vincent was at the hospital in Arles and did his paintings there or... You know, then he had some good moments when he was in the south of France painting out in the fields. So uh, you could say you have good days and bad days and bad days and worst days and, mm. in, in a person's life. 
that illustrates it's interesting that uh, people seeing your paintings, for example, mm-hmm. might have a different emotional reaction than you as the artist would have to, to those same. I guess that would happen with any artist. I think that's the glory with art is that we all interpret it different based on our own experience. You know, I've had people come up and tell me uh, two very different things, two different meanings of something I've made. I'll give you a fun story. I was um, I was painting uh, a picture of a, a man uh, who was had his shoulders slumped, and a woman was standing behind him with his arms around him. And um, after an exhibit, um, a man came up to me and he said, "I know exactly what you meant by this painting." And I said, "Well, tell me." <laughs> He said, you want to go out and discover the world, but your wife is holding you back. <laughs> I, said, I, I, I had really painted that she was kind of holding me together, but he, he thought he meant that she, I want to go out and discover the world. She was holding me back. But I, I thought that was funny, but it, it just illustrates how we interpret art differently, and I think that's great. Mm-hmm. So I want to follow up a little more about how art became so important in I guess helping you with your depression, hearing your anxiety. How, how one thing from what you said, you discovered Munch and, and mm-hmm. Van Gogh, and I guess you would feel not so alone. That's, yes, that's one yes. thing. What? Uh, how else? Um, there is just so much to it. You have the cathartic aspect of working, of taking something that's inside you and getting it out. Uh, I was interviewed like this in in a radio show in Norway, or it was from a magazine actually. And um, I said, I could have started on heroin, but I decided to paint. Hmm. It was this idea that when you're in terrible, terrible pain, you just can't deal with it. you got to do something. And a lot of people, they turn to drugs or they turn to alcohol or something to just help them lessen the pain. And in a strange way, that's what happened to me with art. I would go into my studio sometimes feeling absolutely hopeless, and I would listen to music and paint for maybe eight, 10 hours, and I would come out of there with a little bit, at least a sense of control, uh, that I had gotten something out of my system. And so that is why I say that art saved me, because working in, you know, harder and harder with my art through all these years helped me also to work through my issues. I'm not cured by any means. I'm still struggling with this um, to a certain extent, up and down, but I'm a lot better now. But um, I mean, I I was at the hospital actually right before Christmas for two weeks of, mm-hmm. for exhaustion again, just mm-hmm. to get help. Mm-hmm. And so that's not too long ago. And here I am sitting in Utah in the studio with you. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, normally I'd feel a little stigma saying that, but I don't anymore. Mm. I needed that help. And that's important, right? Get the help when you need it. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, it sounds like your, your wife's been very supportive. Um, yes. Um, yeah, my wife is, you, what, what role has she played? Well, my readers, they mm-hmm. will often say that she's the heroine. <laughs> mm-hmm. They don't understand how she's stuck with me through all of these things. And uh, um, I can't say anything else. And uh, that's true. She's uh, She's been with me through a lot of this. I can't say all of it because a lot of the things you go through with depression is a deeply personal thing. It's like when my wife had cancer, uh, got cancer last year. We talked about that, and she said, we're not fighting this. This is my cancer. I have to fight it. And it's sort of that same feeling with depression, too, that uh, it's your own battle, but you need someone to to be there and support you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
How, how's she doing, by the way? Uh, the, she, the cancer is in a recession. Oh, good. And good. Uh, it, it looks good. It's been a little bit hard because her sister has leukemia at the same time back in wow. Arizona. So she's actually with her right now in Arizona. So our family's been struck pretty hard last year. Hmm. How, did, how did your boys handle this? I mean, your, your boys are pretty young when you started going through this. Um, the book will talk about some of those segments, uh, conversations with my boys. Um, they were lucky to have a uh, close family by, you know, we, our in-laws live across the street from us. And uh, my wife's family, uh, they, she has many brothers and sisters, uh, uh, also live close by. So they always had the, the support of close family, which I think is uh, something that really made a difference. The worst for people that suffer for depression is to have no support network around them, and it's common. They might have had their wife or husband leave them, or they live alone or something like that. That That is unfortunately a situation I was not in. And I think my kids didn't really take um, too big of a beating because of that. They always had support, support of their grandparents and of my wife. But I think they have a great sense of empathy towards people with mental illness. They don't judge. Um, I think that that's that's a good thing that come out of this for them. I just want to end with your art. So you uh, you you founded you you started Twitter art. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was what, a fun project. What do you what do you call it? Twitter art exhibit. Twitter art exhibit. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, Twitter art exhibit was started seven years ago in my hometown of Norway when my library needed funding for children's books. It was cut from the government, local government. And I read about it in the paper and I thought of a way that we could raise money for that. And so I got this idea that I had a lot of artist friends on Twitter, you know, looking at each other's work, supporting each other, that everybody could send a hand-painted postcard to my city and then um, we'll put it up on a wall in the library and then we sell them for like $30 and all the money goes to the library. And it was such a huge success. We, we got like 300 cards from 25 countries. That's the nice thing about social media. You come from all over the place. And uh, this has been an event that's just been growing and growing and we have it once a year. You can follow it on Twitter or on Instagram. But... Um, we just finished it in March in Stratford-upon-Avon in the uh, UK. We had 1,100 cards from 65 countries, and we raised $20,000 for uh, Molly's Ollies, which is a cancer foundation for, for children. It's kind of like Make-A-Wish Foundation. Mm, wonderful. And your art, you describe yourself as a colorist and expressionist? Is yes. Is that accurate? Because my art is all about transferring emotion, getting motion out into the canvas. Mm. And I use color to express emotion probably more than anything. So, yeah, expressionist painter, um, trying to get stuff from the inside out, uh, have something to say. It's cathartic for me, yeah. and I use color to do it. What, what's, re- what's the reaction that you get? With my what, art? Yeah, what do people tell you about your art? Well, I try not to think too much about it. <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. But, right. no, it's general positive. You always have people who don't like that kind of art. Mm. I'm not into really realistic art, and a lot of people want it to look like a photograph, but mm-hmm. if I want that, I'll just take a photograph, and then I'll do the painting. On the <laughs> right. Yeah. No, but in general, very positive. People yeah, are good. supportive. 
And in the book, I just want to say, it doesn't just mention my work. I have Munch's paintings, the ones that inspired me. I have pictures by uh, Van Gogh and uh, all the copyrights that went into that. That was a big job. But mm. the book has 44 pictures. Uh, about 20 of them are by other artists that inspired me. Wonderful. And, and of course, some of your artwork as well. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, the book, I, I should say, here at the end, uh, has won several awards. 2016 First Horizon Award winner, uh, 2016 uh, the Da Vinci Eye Award finalist, uh, 2016 Eric Hoffer Micro Press Award winner, Southwest Book Design and Production President's Choice Award, all from 2016. Uh, when the book uh, book uh, came out, uh, what, uh, 2015? Yeah, September 2015. Uh, it's out on Kindle as well. Uh, you can get an electronic version. Uh, the title is I'll Run Till the Sun Goes Down, a memoir about depression and discovering art. At the end, I... I, I should ask you, where did the title come from? I'll run till the sun comes down. You have to read the final few pages. Okay. You read the last three well, pages, you'll understand. We'll uh, leave that uh, as a mystery. <laughs> People go to the book. The book is I'll Run Till the Sun Goes Down, a memoir about depression and discovering art. Uh, you can interact with David Sandom. Uh, he'll be headlining an event at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City, 7 to 9 this evening. And uh, the website is davidsandum.com. Last name is spelled S-A-N-D-U-M. David Sandum, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.